where we're going this morning. Let's read the scripture as it points the way, as what Matt's about to teach. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like that. Well, week four, study of Mark, we finally get out of chapter one. Now to chapter two. If you got your Bibles, flip over. We're going to spend our time there. But Jessica just read a story that is probably familiar to a lot of you. Story of God or Jesus healing the paralytic. Any, uh, any photographers in the house today? You got one there? No, we got one here. Emily uh, shot all the... Pictures that you saw on the slideshow for Winter Freeze did a phenomenal job. Like, if you are, um, how many of you guys take pictures? But you didn't raise your hand. You're not a photographer, right? Probably because you, like me, take pictures with a can with a uh, phone, and you think like to be a photographer, you need to hold one of these, right? The difference between someone who uses one of these and someone who uses a phone, really, a, a real, uses one of these well, is this idea of focus. A picture is worth what? A thousand words. We say that all the time because a right picture, a good picture captures emotion. It captures a moment. It captures something that's going on, right? And typically what you don't even realize is you're drawn to something that the photographer chose to focus on, brought something to the forefront, brought something, made something clear, blurred other things so you would see what they believed was most important, what they wanted you to see in that moment. In a story like we have this morning, a story where Jesus heals the paralytic, it's a story that's probably familiar to a lot of us. And if we're not careful, I think we end up focusing on these different things, the things that we know. And this morning, I want to invite you because I believe Mark, in a very short, in a very succinct way, leaves out a ton of details he could have added. But in leaving out those details, I believe he's zeroing in on something he wants us to see about our God. He wants us to see about Jesus. He wants us to understand. He wants us to believe. He wants to shape the way we see him, understand him, and follow him. You see, we pick up in chapter 2, and chapter 2 is actually the first of five encounters we're going to see Jesus have. And every one of these encounters in the next five sections within Mark are going to follow a similar pattern. Jesus is going to do something that's surprising, 
He's then going to be challenged by their scribes or religious leaders. And then he's going to say something or do something that silences those objections. So it's going to happen again and again and again and again and again and again over the next few uh, sections of Mark. And we come to the first one today. This one beginning in verse 1 as Jessica just read. When he returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Last week, we talked about Jesus healing the leper and the result of him healing the leper and telling the leper not to go tell anybody what happened and the leper not following that advice. The result of that was the crowds, his fame grew exponentially. He couldn't go in any city, any town. He had to stay on the outskirts. He had to stay in the desolate places, Mark tells us. And a lot of times, as we've seen in Mark, you have the word immediately. And these scenes are changing very quickly. And he went from here to there to there and immediately went there and immediately to this. You don't have immediately as you open chapter 2. There's been some time. There's been some distance. Jesus has been out. He hasn't been back. So chapter 2 opens with him coming home. Jesus didn't necessarily have a house that was his. Actually, we're told elsewhere that Jesus did not have a home. It's believed that Capernaum became kind of his home base. And Capernaum was a place where he often stayed. And more than likely, he's coming home to Peter's house. to Peter's mother-in-law's house, where he healed her in chapter 1. He's coming home, and word gets out, and the crowds come. You see, Jesus is now a celebrity. Jesus has become famous. And with fame comes crowds and critics. Crowds and critics. The crowds are coming, but what we're going to find is the critics are also coming as well. It says there was not room enough for all these people to come into the house. The houses in those days were small. Houses were roofs were constructed on top of wooden or stone walls. And the size of the room was dependent on the size of the resources you had that could span the roof. Now, any of you guys grew up as fort builders? Yes. Now, back in the day, growing up, my house that I grew up in had this odd um, deal in the backyard. I don't know if it was to save money or what. Somewhere, where, somehow, they decided to take the drainage that was coming off the street, run it in a pipe underneath our yard to the backyard, and then just leave it. So you got out of our grassy area into the woods and you had a drainage pipe that just emptied into the woods. And then about 50 yards later, there was another pipe. And I guess the hope was they thought if we put a pipe here and a pipe there, we'll just let the water run and find its way to the other pipe. Now, knowing what we've done in our parking lot around this campus with the county and all that they check in on, I don't think the county was involved in planning my backyard. But the result of the, this planning was my backyard had a massive, what we called the ditch. And it was literally like 10 feet deep. There were some places where you could, we had a rope you'd climb down and then a rope where you'd climb up. And as a result, it was the perfect place to build forts. But to build a fort, the, biggest, the bigger the fort you could build, the better. The better. And the bigger, what was needed to build a big fort was the longest log you could find that could span the expanse. That's the setting we have with these houses. They've got these, this wood, these beams that they've got, but the wood is not in abundance. They, but they're going to make a house as big as the wood that they have to cover the expanse that they can then build a roof on. So the houses were small. 
So people are crowding in. People are close. There's not enough room. They're outsides. And then this happens. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is famous, which is attracting crowds and critics. And now we see these friends show up. These friends are incredibly devoted and they are incredibly determined. Think about it. Jesus was in Capernaum. He was in the synagogue. He cast out a demon. That night, all of the sick and the demon-possessed came, and he healed them and cast them out. So more than likely, this guy is not from Capernaum. He's from beyond there. Because whatever happened, maybe when word finally got to him, we don't know if he tried to come, didn't make it in time, or didn't come, but he was not there when Jesus first was in Capernaum and healing. Therefore, I'm guessing they brought him a long way. And when they get there, they can't get in. So what do they do? You know the story. More than likely, they climb up on the roof. They climb up on the roof because if you can't go through the door and you can't get through a window, everyone knows the next feasible option is to go through the roof, right? (laughs) In those days, I don't know what you picture when you picture them letting him through the roof because a lot of the dramas and the movies and the shows almost show these guys climbing up to the roof and conveniently there was a couple palm branches over a hole they moved the palm branches and they let him down that likely wasn't the case because here's a couple pictures of a couple houses that have been reconstructed in the Nazareth area to show what would have been could have been back in Jesus's day you see the stone walls you see the roof you see the logs you see actually you see stuff growing on top of the roof because look to the right you have these long these bigger logs followed by some smaller logs followed by what is mud or plaster and so when the text says they um, they dug through the they unroofed removed the roof literally they mean they unroofed it they dug through it Which means this doesn't happen like instantaneous. Can you picture for a second? Jesus is inside. He's teaching. Everyone's listening. People are outside. These guys who, I mean, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to be able to get to them from the roof, right? So these guys go up to the roof. And then all of a sudden they pop out their shovels. And they start digging through this roof. And think about what's happening down below. Like dirt, sticks, everything is falling inside the house. So Jesus is teaching and I don't know. Do you think he stopped? Um, We're we're just going to let them keep digging. I'm going to keep talking. You can just picture everyone freezing, looking. And it's like, they are really doing this. Yes, they are. Like, why? I mean, I guess they couldn't hear. So they thought they'd dig a hole so they could hear Jesus better. And then the hole keeps getting bigger. And then all of a sudden, this dude is lifted and dropped through the hole. Can you imagine what's going on? And then the, the... The anticipation of like, is Jesus going to be mad about this? Like he actually stays here. Like that's like you just destroyed his house. Can you imagine what Peter's doing right now? And it's in this moment, this guy gets dropped in front of Jesus. And the suspense And what is Jesus going to do when we get to verse 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus see? He saw their faith. 
He saw the faith of the friends. He saw the faith of the paralytic. It was faith that we see again and again amazes Jesus. Here's what's interesting. When we see this, we think Jesus seeing faith and being amazed at great faith and wanting deeper faith and more faith. But it is faith that amazes our God, not the quantity of our faith or the amount of our faith. Faith, as we see later in the New Testament, faith is actually a spiritual gift, which means there are some people in this room that have incredible faith. God has gifted you with the ability to believe and trust things that are mind-blowing. And there's others of us that struggle and want to have faith. But there is no way a continuum where God goes, well, I'm, I love them more and I love him less. It is faith, and he recognizes from wherever we are, faith is trusting and believing in who God is and what he says is true. Jesus doesn't have a scale of the deeper faith and weaker faith. He's amazed by faith. And what does he say? As a result of their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, step back into this house again. You're you're one of the unlucky people. You're outside. You didn't get inside. And so you actually haven't even seen Jesus. You just heard things being passed along, telephoned outside. What did he say? This happened. And you're getting the play-by-play, right? Hey, um, they're digging a hole. Okay, the guy's coming in. Okay, the guy's in the roof. The guy's on the floor. He's in front of Jesus. Okay, what's Jesus going to do? I think he's going to heal him. Well, he's healed everyone else who's come to him. I think he's going to heal him. What did he say? He said, um, he said his sins are forgiven. You see people outside going, wait, what? Did, did Jesus get confused? I don't think that's why they came. Like, I don't think they came in order to be forgiven. I think he came to be healed. Doesn't Jesus know that he's paralyzed? Doesn't Jesus know what his greatest need is? Yes. Jesus knows what his greatest need is. The reality is most of the crowd, and maybe even the man himself, did not know what his greatest need really was. Tim Keller says it well. He says, your main problem, your greatest need, isn't your suffering, it is your sin. Your greatest need, your greatest problem is not your suffering, as hard as that may be. Your greatest need is actually your sin problem and my sin problem. That is what I need fixed more than anything. We don't know anything, anything about this man's story. Did you notice that? Mark And telling us nothing, I think, is telling us a lot. And by not telling us the man's story, I think he's inviting you and I to be a part of the story. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear a bunch of details and someone shares a story, I am quick to distance myself from the story. Yeah, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'm not that foolish or I'm not that strong or I don't have that much faith or I don't believe that or I, I don't, I don't, I distance myself. But in this story, we don't have details to distance ourselves from. What we see is a man who is brought to Jesus. What we see is a man who when Jesus sees him, the first thing he says is your sins are forgiven. 
I believe Mark is taking the camera and he's zeroing in. He's focusing in and saying, guess what? This is a story, first and foremost, about forgiveness. And this is what's crazy. If you look in your Bible, what is the caption on, or the title of this section? Jesus heals a paralytic or something along those lines, right? Yes, Jesus does end up healing him, but let's not get there yet. First and foremost, Jesus forgives him. This is a story about forgiveness before it is a story about healing. You see, every person's story is unique. Every single person in this room has a different story. And what's cool about the church is we've all had connections, right? You have people in this room, people in our faith family you've connected with because you have similar stories, but you don't have the same story. Every person's story is unique, but every person's deepest need is the same. What unites us around Christ is their understanding that every single one of us with unique stories has the same deepest need. We all need forgiveness. Think back a year ago, 2023. I don't know what was going on in your world. What was your greatest need a year ago? What was the most pressing burden in your world? What were you anxious about, worried about? What were you, if someone showed up and said, if I could change anything in your world, what would it be? What was it last year? Because for some of you, it's still the same. And that's really hard because it's still the same. But for a lot of you, it's different. Our most urgent need is not our deepest need because our urgent needs change constantly. This guy, as he's lowered into Jesus, as he's coming to Jesus, as he's being carried to Jesus, I'm guessing every single day he thought what his life would be like if his legs worked. How many problems would be fixed? How many things he could do if his legs would just work? That was his deepest, or his, his most urgent need. And as he's coming to Jesus, he's thinking, this is what I want most. But Jesus doesn't heal. He forgives. One question that comes up when studying this text is the question of how did Jesus forgive him when he didn't ask for forgiveness? If he didn't repent? Because throughout the Old Testament up until this point, You saw again and again, God willing to forgive, but his forgiveness was always based on repentance. When we mess up, we turn back to God, say, I messed up. I want forgiveness. I'm back to you. I will follow you now. The whole book of Leviticus, which we're reading right now as a church, if you're following our chronological reading plan, we're in Leviticus. It's all about how we can come back to God. But this guy doesn't ask for forgiveness. He's simply forgiven. Check out this. Just through the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Forgiveness comes when there's repentance. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you, who all who ask And again, we jump to the New Testament. It's the same idea. But God, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, says, But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved. And how do we get that grace? How are we saved? Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a consistent pattern of repentance and then forgiveness that doesn't seem to follow here. Which makes you wonder. In just a couple verses, we're going to find out that Jesus can read the minds of the religious leaders. He knows what they're thinking. Not just what they're saying, but what they're thinking. So I believe what we have here, when Jesus responds to this man being lowered through his roof and saying, your sins are forgiven. He's responding to what this man, he knows this man deeply wants. Think about this for a second. How encouraging is it? that our God does not stand back with arms crossed saying, I will forgive you if you say the magic words in the right way, if you pray the prayer enough times, if you do enough things. What we see here is a picture of our God who rushes in at the smallest hint of us saying, I want to be right with you. I want to come back to you. I know that I need you. This guy says nothing, but it seems that there's something in his heart that is acknowledging this is what I know I need. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, right, sickness and disability was tied to sin. Jesus' disciples later are going to ask when they see somebody who's, uh, who's sick, they're going to go, hey, was that because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Jesus goes, nope, it had nothing to do with their sin. But what we see here is we don't know his story. Maybe this guy knows my sin, my paralysis is because of something I've done wrong. Or it may have had nothing to do with him. Either way, it seems that he comes with a heart and there's a deep desire on his part. I want to be forgiven. Our God desires to forgive. I don't know what you're sitting in today. I don't know what sin maybe keeps pouncing, keeps pursuing you, you keep falling prey to. I don't know what you said, how many times you prayed for something and said, God, I won't do it again. I'll do it right this time. I don't know how many times you've pulled back and said, I don't know if he can forgive me this time. This is a story that reminds us our God wants to forgive. Our God desires to forgive. He's rich in mercy and loving kindness. That is the God that Jesus is revealing in this story. A simple desire to be forgiven is all it takes for this guy and for you and for me today. This man couldn't even get himself to Jesus. But after his friends carry him and before he can even articulate the words, Jesus meets him in his deepest need, his need for forgiveness. So I'll go back to the question did Jesus miss what this man needed most? Everyone knows what the guy needs seemingly except Jesus who skips healing and starts with forgiveness. But when we look at the story, we should be encouraged that Jesus doesn't just address our urgent needs. He presses into our deepest needs. Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and we're stepping into the season of Lent as we look towards Easter in a couple weeks. 
And the purpose of Lent is a season where we just sit in our need for Jesus, a posture of repentance of saying, I need Jesus. So that when we get to Easter, we can celebrate with Easter, Easter with a greater celebration because we recognize this wasn't like Jesus helped us kind of get over the final hurdle. No, Jesus took us from death to life. We were desperately lost without him. And as I was, we were, was working through this, this week, this passage, I was thinking, and I was looking at what we were studying with Lent, because each week during Lent, we're posting a devotional on Sundays that's going to focus on the reasons Jesus came. So we can just sit each week within a topic of this is why we needed Jesus to come. This is why we needed Jesus to come. This is what Jesus has done. And I really wish I could tell you we are so incredibly good at planning that we could have coordinated all this. But like this week, as we're talking about this and his Jesus forgiving this guy, what is the focus this week during Lent? The focus is Jesus has come to save sinners. What do sinners need? Sinners need forgiveness. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, the saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus has come. The reason he's come is not to heal. It's to forgive. It's to extend forgiveness so that sinners can be saved. We said before that Jesus' words when he forgives this guy, raises two questions. Did Jesus misunderstand his need? And the second question is, how is this even possible? How can Jesus forgive? Freeze the movie at this point. A cripple lying on the floor in the middle of the construction debris, all the dust and rubble that's come from the roof has now been forgiven. The scene could have ended right there, but it doesn't. Check out verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. The friends couldn't get the cripple to Jesus because of the crowds. Do you see who's sitting next to Jesus? It's the religious leaders. Now, let's be honest. I don't believe that the religious leaders were the first to arrive when Jesus showed up. I'm guessing they were probably some of the last. But because of their place in society and because of who they were, it was expected that they should have the best seats. And so they probably kicked some people out of the house so that they could sit in the house. And they're sitting right next to Jesus. These guys have heard all the things. They've heard, seen some of the miracles, and they're coming to check Jesus out. And as I'm looking at this this week, and as we said, we're going to see over the next few chapters and really through the rest of Mark, how the opposition rises. I think it's really easy for you and I to read about the religious leaders and go, man, I'm so glad I'm not like those guys. But as I thought about it this week, there's a whole lot more similarity to me in the religious leaders than I would like to admit. You see, they were doing their job. As the religious leaders, if somebody comes on the scene teaching something new, it was their job to check him out. It was their job to make sure it was true. But they're not, they have no desire to check out Jesus and think of, 
consider that God may be doing something completely new. Them checking out Jesus is not a matter of what is God doing. It's a matter of how is our frame of reference, how is our life being disrupted? They are more concerned about change than they are about truth. They want to protect their traditions more than they want to be a part of what God is revealing. And I would say in general, the church at large is really good at picking holes in things, really good at finding problems, really good at being critical. But sometimes we struggle at being receptive to what God may be doing new. How what he may be doing is different than what we expected or maybe even different than what we want. I hope that we as a faith family here at Sanctuary, we can't affect anything, we can't change anything out there when it comes to what other people are doing out there, but we can, we can change here and we can commit to being a people that are more about wanting to see God glorified than protecting our own ways. More about wanting to see the truth shared than done in a certain way or a certain style in which we find most appealing. My prayer would be that sanctuary and the people of sanctuary, us as individuals, would be marked by a movement of the spirit, not an advancement of self-righteous personal agendas. And then when you and I open God's word and we read about the religious leaders, when you and I are tempted to go, I'm so glad I'm not like them, the ironic part is, that's exactly what the religious leaders did, right? Jesus calls them out for, make, for saying, I'm so glad they're not like that guy. Let us walk forward with humility, willing to learn and receive and not miss Jesus like these guys did. They are asking the question, who is this Jesus? And I don't know, they've probably heard about the demon possession, demons being cast out, the people being healed. They know the leper has come and been made clean. But I'm guessing what happened right here is probably one of the scariest things that Jesus has done so far. Because he says, I know what you're thinking. Can you imagine? Imagine if you're in, you're not one of the religious leaders, you made it in the room, you're standing there, and you're going, he's reading thoughts. What do you do next? You're like, cling thoughts, cling thoughts, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, just thinking happy things, cupcakes, rainbows, everything else, right? Like, he reads minds? Like, this is, this is, this is, this is going bonkers. He heals, that's one thing. But reading minds, what is going on? And he says this, when he reads their minds, he looks at them and he says, listen, what's harder to do? You ask the question, who can forgive sins? God can. So Jesus is making a direct claim to his divinity by saying, yes, I can do what you know only God can do. The religious leaders miss the logical conclusion, if only God can do it and you can do it, then maybe there's a connection between you and God. Instead, they completely ignore that. But look at what Jesus is doing when he forgives. This is crazy. If I go down, say we go to lunch. We go to Marietta Square for lunch. We're walking the streets of Marietta Square. And I come up on a couple of dudes and they're just pounding on each other. Like it's a brawl. They're just going. And I come in and one guy got a guy on the ground and he's just pounding him. And I, being the strapping big guy that I am, steps in, right, to break up the fight. And I pull the guy off and I push him back. And I hold him over here. 
And this guy's bloody mess. He's just been beaten up. And he's on the ground. The guy who's beat him up is over here. And I'll turn to the guy who beat him up and I go, hey, I forgive you. You'd be like, what? You don't have the authority to do that. Like it, it wasn't a transgression against you. The guy who needs to forgive him is the guy who's bloody on the ground. He's the one who was hurt. So not only when Jesus offers forgiveness, does he claim to be God? In this moment, check out what's happening. Every single sin that is committed, I may sin against you. I may lie to you, hurt you, offend you, cheat you. And we think that's between us. But beyond us, it's actually an affront to God. Right? Every time I sin, I'm doing something contrary to what God has said is right. And so I'm saying, not your way, my way. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. We see that in the story of David. David, uh, Psalm 51, verse 4, after his, everything goes down with Bathsheba, David goes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No, you're saying David sinned against a whole bunch of other people. Yes, he did. But ultimately, David sinned against God. And so in this moment, check this out, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, this guy has probably sinned against a lot of other people, but Jesus is going, no, above all, you've sinned against me. The God of the universe, the creator of the world is standing in front of this man saying, your sins are forgiven. The sins you've committed against me. I'm forgiving you because I'm the only one who can forgive you. Because just like I can't forgive the guy who beat up the guy on the street, guess what? Only God can forgive me of what I have done, my sins, because those sins are ultimately against him. And Jesus calls out the thoughts of religious leaders. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And he goes, what is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. In verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The healing of the legs validates the healing of the soul. So what about you? This story did not happen because Jesus wanted it to be in the Bible one day so we could call it a Bible story. This is a God story. This happened so that people could see and understand a little bit more the heart of our God and his love for us. So let me ask you this. Do you need healing or forgiveness? What is your greatest need today? Healing or forgiveness? Every single one of us carried burdens and worries in today. Consciously or subconsciously, you came today and you come to God when you pray, when you spend time in his word, you come wanting something. What is it? What is it? And maybe it's not healing. Maybe it's 
fixing? What is it that you want God to fix in your life? I'm guessing you, like me, have got a long list of things that I would love for God to fix in my life. And what's crazy is when we hear a story like this, I think we're tempted, at least I am tempted to think, that I shouldn't say I want God to fix something. I should say I'm content with forgiveness. Or maybe we think if I seek forgiveness, then I'll get fixing. Or maybe if I get my heart right, then God will fix my life. But that's not what God is after here. That's not the God we see portrayed here. You see, it can be easy for us to think that God is an either-or God. The choice is fixing and healing or forgiveness. Which one do you want? As if there's like a better one. Like if we choose the one we now don't really want, I really need you to fix this urgent need for you. So, but I know that I should say I want forgiveness. But if I don't pick forgiveness, then I'll never get the healing. But if I get the healing and then I, I don't know what to do, God, I just... Ah! In those moments, I think our God is saying, I'm not an either-or God. This story points to our God is a both-and. The guy doesn't have to pick healing or forgiveness. He gets both. Now, does that mean that we have a genie God who gives us everything we want whenever we want it? Absolutely not. How long did this guy suffer? We have no idea. There are people in this room that have been dealing with sickness, that have been dealing with hardships, that have been dealing with all kinds of things. It's not a matter of our God is a both and God, which means we get everything. We can have our cake and eat it too. No, that's where the beginning, the faith comes in that amazed Jesus, that he invites us to live by faith, trusting in the goodness of his heart. It goes all the way back to the garden. Everything goes back to the garden. When everything was perfect and then everything was broken. And what happened? How did it get broken? Because Satan, Satan used a lie. The lie was your God is an either or God. He either loves you and will let you do whatever you want or he doesn't love you. Which is why he told you you can't eat from this tree. And Adam and Eve took the bait. And you and I have been taking the bait ever since. Believing that our God is an either or instead of a both and. We come back to this story. The question is, what is Mark wanting us to see? What is he focusing on? What is he drawing out? A picture that can tell a thousand words. What does he want us to see most? I think he wants us to see forgiveness. He wants us to see the heart of our God that moves towards us graciously wanting, desiring to give us our deepest need, not just our urgent needs. The friends, the scribes, the paralyzed man in the crowd, every single person needed one thing most. They needed forgiveness that can only be given through Jesus. So, as we close, what does it look like for you to get to Jesus? What does it look like for you to come to the one who can heal and can forgive? In the text, the word Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth 
to forgive sins. Authority there is saying not only does he have the ability, he has the authority. He can do it, and he has the authority to do it. What does it look like for you to come to Jesus this week? Jesus asked a question that I think we miss because we think we know the answer. And those who are hearing Jesus thought they knew the answer too, but Jesus, as usual, knew that there was so much more to this question and this answer than they would know in the moment. He asks the question, which is easier, to heal or to forgive? And everybody listening in the room would have known the easier thing to do is to say you forgive. It's blasphemy. You're going to get in big trouble for it. But the easier thing is to say you forgive him because you can't prove it if it happened or not. Now to heal, he either is walking out of here or he's not. We're going to know what's true. But what Jesus knew as he looked ahead was that no, the hardest thing that anyone could ever do, the thing that I can do that no one else could ever do, Forgiveness is going to be so incredibly costly. Forgiveness is going to cost everything. But forgiveness is going to bring the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Because as Jesus looked down at this man's legs that did not work, Jesus knew that for him to forgive this man, Jesus' legs would be nailed to a tree. And this man was about to stand up and walk home, but Jesus was going to be taken down from that tree and laid in a grave. That's what forgiveness was going to cost. Forgiveness would cost everything. The hardest thing that could ever be done was for Jesus to say and make it happen for you and I to experience forgiveness. That is what Jesus came to give. That is what Jesus is extending today. Psalm 103, 2 through 3 reminds us of who our God is when the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. This is our God, a God who heals and a God who forgives. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for a story that we're familiar with. But God, there's so much truth there about who you are. God, I pray in this room that people, we would be overwhelmed with a God who forgives. God, there's stories, there's baggage. There are things that we think can't be forgiven. I pray that people would experience your forgiveness like never before. Not because we've said some magical phrase, not because we've done some spiritual hurdles, but because we simply came to Jesus. So God, would you help us? Would you help us get to you? Would you help us experience the miracle? It is a miracle. The miracle of forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray.